All right, everyone, we're going to try and get started here. And um, first of all, I want to welcome everyone back to our session here where we're going to be talking about all about seeds, starting, and bed preparation. Can everyone hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Just want to make sure that it's coming through well. All right. All right. So um, last time we ended up talking about different types of seeds, GMO seeds, um, hybrid seeds, open pollinated. And continuing on with that, these are just some little th thoughts to consider with seed when you're purchasing seed, when you're looking for what kinds of seeds to grow. Um, there's evidence, uh, wait, did I already say this? Yes. Okay, here we go. Something that you may want to consider when selecting seeds. Number one is eating quality. You wanna, you wanna look for seeds that grow something that actually tastes good and that has good eating quality, uh, pest and disease resistance. This is something that you can look for in seed catalogs. They may say something on it, on, on the seed variety itself that it's, it's resistant to a certain type of disease. And if you're especially having problems with that disease, that's something to make note of. Um, another one here is days to maturity. It'll show up in just a second. Days to maturity. That's especially if you're growing in the in the winter. You need to make sure that you have that your plants are mature by the time winter sets in and the cold hits. Storage quality. If you're growing storage vegetables, make sure you want to grow ones that will store well. And these are things to look up when you're thinking about growing a certain type of variety. Look up information on that and see if they are known for good storage, or are known for good taste, or are known for good pest or disease resistance. You should be able to find it either in the catalog or you can Google it online. Um, ease of harvest, for instance, carrots with strong tops and beans that grow above the bush are easier to, to pick. Uh, so th those are just a couple examples. The time of harvest is something to consider, especially with extending your season, and frost resistance and hardiness, especially for your spring and fall garden. There are certain varieties that are more frost resistant than others, and so that's something to consider. And going on here, day length, short day varieties for winter growing. I know I'm kind of speeding through these. We've got a lot to cover. Um, the, that's something to consider. As what happens is, as the winter comes, as your days get shorter, your plants slowly stop growing, and you'll notice it just in the natural world. And they may not totally stop growing, but they come to a point where they're almost stopped growing, and it's about where the days become ten hours or shorter. I believe it's about that time. So. Then there's convenience. If you have, for instance, self-blanching cauliflower, then you don't have to go out there and, and blanch it, which is keeping the sunlight off of the cauliflower. Um, Non-staking or determinant tomatoes can you know, be convenient for you. There are more. So if you want to, there, there's more things that you could look into. The new organic grower, last, last session, we, what there, it was mentioned that you know, there's books about for school there are books for gardening that are. I would really encourage you, if you want to learn more, to invest in some books for gardening. And um, the New Organic Grower is a, is a good one. It is. It's actually focused more on market gardening than home gardening, so it does, it's, it's a little bit more in-depth. But uh, f the Four Season Harvest is one that's a little bit more for the home garden, which is an excellent book by a gentleman by the name of Elliot Coleman who grows all year long up in Maine without, and he can do it without additional heat sourcing and stuff like that. All right, so when it comes down to buying your seeds, where should you buy your seeds? How do you know that it's a good source uh, for buying seeds? Here are some excellent seed companies. Um, Johnny Selected Seeds is an excellent company that we use quite a bit. You can look them up online, High Mowing Seeds, and I believe all of these seed companies that I'm giving you will give you a free catalog if you go on to their go on to their website, sign up for their catalog, they'll send you a free one. High Mowing Seeds, Baker's Creek Seeds, Southern Exposure, Seeds of Change, Territorial Seeds. These are all great 
seed companies that you can feel confident in buying seeds from them. Not all of them are 100% organic, although high mowing seed, I believe, is 100% organic. Not sure about Baker's Creek. They might be, yeah, 100% organic. Johnny's isn't, but they all have something in common, and, and that is they take what's called the safe seed pledge. And that's something that you want to look for if you're looking for a seed company, someone that has taken the seed safe, the safe seed pledge, which is basically they're saying that they don't sell genetically modified seeds. That's basically what the safe seed pledge is. So how much seed should I buy? And how, how you plant your garden can actually make a difference here. If you're direct seeding or if you're transplanting into your garden. The, if you're direct seeding into the garden, then you, I, you actually have to put in a lot more seed than if you are transplanting into your garden. And basically, direct seeding is just you know, putting the seeds right into the ground. Transplanting is starting them in a little uh, soil block or in a... Um, in a plug tray or something like that. All right, seed companies will usually give you estimated numbers for direct seeding your vegetables. Um, seed is relatively cheap, and it's a good idea to purchase extra just in case. So when it comes to purchasing, your se purchasing seed, it's pretty cheap, so you might as well purchase extra. Save your seed in a cool, dry, and dark place for the best results, and Freezer, you can, you can do it in a freezer. Yeah, we've done it in a freezer ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent place. Freezer, an old refrigerator, or, yeah. I mean, you're talking about a freezer that's on, right? Yeah. <laughs> just, to, just to clarify, yeah, you can do it in a freezer. Um, or an old refrigerator that you have. It's nice, it's dark, it's cold. It'll keep them, keep them well. If you don't have, if you don't keep them well, your old seed that is saved properly should still do fine, but there's really no guarantee when it comes down to it. As the years go by, your viability is going gonna, is gonna to slowly drop. Um, so, you know, you could save them for a couple years and still have good germination, but it might not be as good as at the beginning, and it's just going to slowly drop over, over time. Yeah, and we've noticed, I believe, a drop as well. We ex although, to, I appreciate you sharing that. And just for everyone that is online, the comment was that um, the viability dropped half to three quarters after a couple years of saving um, seeds in a freezer. And we've noticed a drop as well. We haven't been taking as close records on it. It's amazing what God does to keep seeds viable for, it's not genetic, yeah, there you go. It's not genetically altered either. Okay, she was just saying that with her spinach, it was even less, there was about a fourth of it that grew up after the two years. Thanks, I really appreciate those comments. They add a lot. So a little summary here. Remember that a good garden plan can really boost your whole garden experience. After laying out your garden and choosing what to grow and marking out your growing candle calendar, you'll be ready to prepare the beds and start putting the seeds in the ground. So let's go into that. Um, seeds, and then here we go into the official. So that was kind of finishing up from last session. Here we go into seed starts and bed preparation. Why direct seed some seeds and why transplant other seeds? Um, it's a good question. Direct seeding is literally just planting the seeds straight into the ground, um, right where they're going to grow all the way to maturity. And it's not practical or economical. When it comes down to it, it's not practical or economical to transplant some crops and, or some vegetables. And some examples of these are tap-rooted crops, carrots or parsnips, um, low return per square foot crops. So that's talking about more on the on the farm scale right there, corn and pumpkin, um, legumes, your peas and beans, and fast growing crops like radishes and spinach. These are all ones that do well uh, direct seeding and that you might want to direct seed into the, the garden. Herbs can go kind of either way. And kind of one of the one of the things here is on our farm, we actually transplant probably 80 to 90% of our vegetables, and I'll hit some, some reasons why we do that. Um, and so first, what I'm doing here is just showing you that there are some seeds that it's more efficient to direct seed than transplant, but at the same time, I'm going to be telling you that if you can transplant them, there's some really great um, benefits from being able to do that, um, st starting your own seeds and then transplanting them. So how to direct seed, it's pretty self-explanatory, but at the same time, 
you know, if you're totally brand new to gardening, here's a quick little rundown. Hand seeding is usually um, used for the cucurbit family. That's your cucumbers, um, your pumpkins, summer squash, and winter squash. These are nice big seeds that you can use. For poor soils, you can plant these in small mounds of compost or manure covered with soil for an extra little fertility boost as they start out. Germination percentages for direct seeding tend to be lower than the percentage on the seed packet. So if you're looking on the seed packet, they're going to tell you, you know, 70 to 80 percent um, germination. You might get you might get that. You might not. It's just something to keep in mind. Allow for a fudge factor of 50 to 100 percent germination. So, for example, if you want to plant a plant every, if you want in the end to have a plant every four inches, plant them every two inches. And you can always thin them out. It's a lot easier that way. As a general planting rule, here's a quick little guide. Um, cover your seeds three to four times their diameter. So, for instance, if you have a quarter inch diameter pea, plant it about an inch deep. So that's just something that you can store away in your mind as a quick little tip for, for planting seeds. Yeah. Oh, good question. He is asking, what do you mean by thin them out? Okay, so once you've, say you've planted them every two inches, but you don't want to plant every two inches. You want to plant every four inches. Um, as they come up, they may come up too thick because you planted um, more than you were needing. So when they're small, you could go in and take out the plants in between so that you end up only having one every four inches. Does that make sense? And the reason why you want to plant thickly in the beginning is because you don't, there's no guarantee if they'll germinate or not. And so they might come up sparse, yeah. You could transplant them out or you could just pull them out and throw them on the compost pile. Yeah, either way. Wow, that's a great little example right there. He was saying he grows Jerusalem artichokes. If he grows them too thick, he gets half a pound out of 10 plants. But if he grows them at the proper spacing right, you get half a pound off of one plant or something like that. A half a pail of roots from one plant, two feet apart with Jerusalem artichokes. That's excellent. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Appreciate it. I'm repeating it just because we have people listening online, and so I want them to be able to hear as well. So moving on here. Um, in cool or heavy soils, plant a little shallower so that your seeds have a little better chance at um, germinating and coming up. In warm or dry soils, you can plant slightly deeper. These are just ballparks to think about when you're starting your seeds. And keep the soil moist until your plants have germinated and come up. Next up, we're going to talk about um, making a row. And this is something that just if, if you want to have a nice looking garden that is beautiful and relaxing to come into, uh, you, you know, my family, we, we don't have the experience of generations going back farming. Uh, my dad, my, both of my grandparents are doctors. And so we come into it from maybe a little more of an artistic slant. And we like everything looking really nice and our rows being straight and all of that. And so you can go out there and um, mark your rows. Sarah, do you mind clicking it again? It's, my thing is bogged down again. So you can mark the row before seeding and that will give you a nice straight row. Um, stretch, way you can do this is stretch a string tightly along the side of your uh, of your first row or for your first row. And then if you're using a, a, a seeder, you can buy seeders. Sometimes they have a marker out the side that will mark your next row going along next to it. Um, that's just a little tip. Aim your seeder straight for each pass. For larger areas, you can use an adjustable rolling marker to mark your rows. So now for, now I recognize that we're talking about home gardening, so all of you might not have a cedar or something like that. You can just mark them out with a hoe or something, something like that to keep your rows nice and straight. So now why transplant versus direct seed? What are the, some of the benefits of transplanting? And the first one is transplanting is more reliable. Transplanting is the most reliable way of having a uniform crop with a predictable harvest date. Plants are, uh, trans, this is what transplanting is. Your plants are started in, the, in your home, your greenhouse, cold frame, whatever it is, where you have more control over the environment than if they were directly planted in the field. And in the end, your transplants will actually do better. The harvest state is more predictable because plant growth varies the most in the seedling stage when your plants are small. That's when they are just getting off of the ground um, just thinking of the analogy right now, you know, when do you grow the fastest? You grow the fastest right when you're born, 
and you're just, you know, you're just starting off, if they have the best environment during that seedling stage, they will, um, they'll grow, the, they'll grow the best, and and then you'll be able to have a more predictable harvest date in the end. Um, and then your garden looks nicer because there's no gaps from ungerminated plants. A second reason here is better plant care and cost efficiency. It's easier to give thousands of seedlings or hundreds, as in the case of home gardening, to uh, extra care they need when they're in a small space rather than spread over wide areas in the field or in the garden. There's less labor and expense involved in providing the ideal growing conditions for a small area than trying to make a whole garden area have you know the most ideal conditions for, for growing in. And the third one here is there's an almost sure harvest from your transplants. You can pretty much be assured that your crop will produce at the time and in the amount that you need. Um, Elliot Coleman says a seed sown in the field is a gamble, but a healthy three to four week old transplant set out in the field provides an almost sure harvest. If you have a transplant that you can put out into the field, you're, you have a pretty good guarantee of getting a harvest off of it as long as you keep it, you know, keep it watered and healthy to the best of your ability. There's always other factors that can play in. And number four here, it's easier to deal with weeds. This is a great one. Um, you know, all of us deal with weeds, right? And when direct seeding, the weeds begin to germinate at the same time or even before the seed that is sown. And so all, you have all these weeds coming up with your plants. And that can be a, a problem, especially as your plants, you know, we planted um, carrots and beets recently and we tried to get in and get the weeds out before, but they came up and our, the weeds grew faster than the carrots you know, because their uh, carrots are a little bit slower growing. And so we actually had to, I, we actually had to literally hold the carrots in place while we were pulling the weeds out because the weeds would have pulled the carrots out. So, that, you know, that's, <laughs> that's just a little example right there of your weeds growing up with your plant. Transplants have a three to four week head start on the newly germinating weeds. So, for instance, you're putting your transplant out there and your transplant is already, you know, four inches high but you can be planting it into a clean bed that doesn't have any weeds. And so they've already got that huge head start on the weeds. Transplants um, don't require any thinning and are much easier to cultivate around to control the weeds. Again, you can put them evenly spaced and that helps with being able to cultivate easily. Number five here, it increases the effectiveness of succession planting. How many of you are familiar with succession planting? Okay, yeah, we have a few. Um, basically, it's, uh, basically, it's taking a, a crop and say you want green beans and you want to grow green beans all summer long and be harvesting all summer long. And so you're going to plant one, one set of green beans the first week and then two weeks later, you're going to plant a new crop of green beans and then three weeks later, you're going to plant a new crop of green beans so that when it comes harvest time, you're going to harvest you know, for two weeks from the first crop, and then you're going to harvest, you know, from the next crop. Does that make sense? So it's in succession. Transplants gives time for succession crops to mature before the previous crop is taken out. And so basically what, this isn't exactly um, taking that scenario with the green beans, but what it is, what it is saying here is that, um, the succession crop can be started three to four weeks before the preceding crop is harvested and taken out. Um, so basically you can grow something and three to four weeks before you harvest it, you can plant something out that's, that's gonna take its place. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me on that one? And so as soon as you take that out, you can put in a transplant that's already three to four inches high. And so you're maximizing your use of your garden space. Does that make sense? Less land can be used more efficiently for greater production by using transplants for a succession crop. And number six here, um, shelter gives a head start. So this is going back to the predictability of your harvest. Seedlings that are sheltered from the weather and can be transplanted out when the weather permits. Again, it's just providing a nice little environment for them to start and it gives them a nice little head start there. That's a good question. He was wondering about lighting. If you're keeping it inside, it might not have as much light. That's, that's something where you want to try and do the best that you can. So find the area in your house that has the most sunlight 
from from Windows or something like that. We ha- I had a I have a friend Alan Seiler who was doing the morning devotional. He would actually take his tomato plants and he would put them on one side of the house. And then as the sun went over the house, he would take them and he moved them over to the other side of the house, you know, to keep them by the window so that they could get the maximum amount of sunlight. Of course, that's labor intensive. You know, you're doing that every single day. Um, but that's something you could do. Another thing you can do is you can use um, grow lights. You know, it's a little more expensive, a little more time to set up a grow light and, and stuff like that. Um, you can use grow lights. You can use just regular fluorescent lights. But they have to be very close to your plants. They have to be within like two to three inches from the tops of your plants for the light to work properly for your plants, just a regular fluorescent bulb. Um, there are specific grow light bulbs, which are for plants, that, it, that can be higher up off of the plant. But that's, that, you know, usually on our farm, it's a different type. So usually on our farm, it's something else. So when I was giving the little illustration with the green beans, you know, it's not that we're planting the green beans again right where they were. Um, not in this seminar. And I don't know that it'll be go- gone over. I don't know if Steve goes over that at all. Just a little bit. He touches on it a little bit. So, yes. Okay. So, yeah, <laughs> a gentleman was saying, be careful with the fluorescents because if you forget about them, you can burn your plants if you just leave them on them too long. That, I'm guessing that's if you left them where the plants grew up and, and were touching them. So let's move on. Transplants mature sooner than those seeded directly and in cool climates. Some crops like tomatoes, melons, and peppers can only be successfully grown if they're started in a warmer environment and then transplanted out into the weather out, when the weather outside warms up. For instance, up in up in northern climates, the growing season is so short that if you want tomatoes, you have to start them inside and then um, transplant them out for, for you to have any harvest at all. So there's three stages to transplanting. There's starting your, your plants. There is potting them on. This is something that is specific to using soil blocks, which is something that we use on the farm and that we really highly recommend. You can use the different... There's soil blocks and there's plug trays. Probably most of you have heard of plug trays or seen them or used them in your garden. Um, soil blocks are a little different. I'll touch on them a little bit here. And then setting your transplants out. So for starting, seeds are sown in some sort of bed or container, like I was saying, um, which usually holds a special soil mix or potting soil. The soil mix is different from garden soil in that it has extra organic matter and drainage material in it. This helps seedlings thrive despite their confined conditions. You can mix up your own soil mix or you can buy a soil mix. Um, If you have the opportunity, I would encourage you to mix up your own. We have a recipe that I could give um, to you all. I don't think that I have it in this presentation here, but you can come and see me afterwards. And then a controlled environment in your home or greenhouse is used to enhance the growing conditions. And, okay, so there's different types of containers to start your seedlings in. Individual pots, the plug type trays, individual cells or soil blocks. Like I said, we prefer the soil blocks for our seedlings. And I wish you could see the picture here. (laughs) This projector isn't the greatest here, but basically a soil block is we have and I was hoping to bring in some some of the tools. I didn't get a chance to bring them in here. Um, it's a it's a f- form that you actually you mix up some soil and you push it down into you push it the form down into the soil and it pushes out these little squares of soil and they stay together pretty good actually. You might you know you want that you have to get a good consistency with enough moisture in there that it, it stays together and then you plant your seeds in those and your seeds grow, and the roots kind of grow out into the soil block, and that helps hold it together as well. And what the potting on here is that you can make different sizes of those soil blocks. So, for instance, you can make really tiny little ones that you start, like if you're starting tomatoes in January, you can start them in this little tiny little soil block so it doesn't take up very much space in your house, and then you can make a bigger soil block that you can actually just slide that one, that small one, into Um, which is called potting on. Um, It's transferring a seedling from its initial container to a larger container um, as time goes on. This is only necessarily for crops that are grown for a longer time or to a larger size before being set out. And then setting out is planting the young plants in the field or greenhouse where they are going to grow. 
The more efficiently this transfer is done, the more cost-effective transplanting becomes. So let's talk about uh, transplanting a little bit here. First of all, avoiding transplant shock. Transplant shock is when, you put, when your plant is transplanted out and it's just changed an environment. It was just been in this nice little protective place and it's transplanted out and all of a sudden the whole wide world is there and all of the sun and the rain and the elements and it can, it can get shocked, you know, whoa, what's going on? Um, so you want to avoid, avoid transplant shock and one of the ways that, or the main way we do this is what's called hardening off. Hardening off is the process of gradually exposing your sheltered seedling uh, to the outside elements. And one way that we do this on the farm is to place the plant, so you're growing them inside, and to harden it off one day, you can place the plants outside at mid-afternoon. So wait all day, leave them inside, and then at mid-afternoon, place the plants outside. They'll catch some of the outside sunlight and environment from mid-afternoon and leave them all the way overnight until mid-morning the next day. So they're not getting the harsh sunlight of the middle of the day, but they are starting to get accustomed to the outside. Does that make sense? And then, and you know, we can do that pretty much for one day. Um, you could do that. You could do that for a couple days. Um, some people can. Some people harden off longer than other people. We probably harden off less than than some people do. Um, I'm guessing. We can pretty much do that. Just place it in the mid mid afternoon through the mid morning the next day. Bring it back in, um, and then the next day place it out for the whole day long, or, or transplant it out, and it works well for us. Um, that's just something from our experience, as far as I know, from what I remember. All right, and then you want to you want to water them. It's important that seedlings be watered well before transplanting, so they're very moist when they go into the ground. Uh, also, try avoid avoid to avoid disturbing their roots. Now, if you leave them in, for instance, a soil block or even in the plug tray, the roots are going to start. In a plug tray, they'll start circling around the plug tray. In a soil block, they'll start going out into the other soil blocks, and you have to kind of tear them apart. They're really pretty hardy. They're not, they're not like they're, if you touch their roots, they're going to die or something like that. Um, they do pretty well. Just, just try avoiding disturbing their roots as much as you can. Um, be careful to preserve their, the fragile root system of the seedlings while transplanting. You're less likely to disturb the roots of the seedling grown in a soil block because the roots are, quote, air pruned. And that's if you plant them out yeah, at the right time. Air pruning is when the, the root reaches the edge of a soil block, it hits air, and it'll actually stop growing for a little bit um, because it hits air. And it's like, uh, you know, well, that's, that's not where I'm supposed to go. Um, if you leave it long enough, it'll keep going, and it'll go into the next soil block over. And when you pull them apart, you'll kind of be pulling their roots apart. Um, next up is proper spacing. Um, by proper spacing transplants, you're making optimum use of the land area. Weeding or cultivating ends up being much more efficient when the plants are properly spaced. And a marker rake is one of the easiest ways to space correctly. Um, you can hardly see it in the picture here, but this is a rake. And on the rake, we use little pieces of um, PEX pipe, little about six four to six inch pieces of PEX pipe and we can we can move them um, we slide them over the tines of the rake and we can move them down different different tine distances apart and then we drag it through our bed and it makes lines and we can make a grid in the bed that way and it's just an easy way to mark out um, our beds for planting the transplants and number three is soil contact Dig a hole with a trowel, place the soil block lightly but firmly in the ground, and try and avoid air pockets or uncovered edges. Uncovered edges is especially important. Even if a corner of your soil block or your plug tray or your plug that your plant is growing in is above the soil, it can easily dry out the soil block. And so when you're planting, transplanting it in, you want to make sure that it's deep enough and then cover, make sure that the top of the soil block or the plug that it's growing in is covered with soil so that it doesn't dry out. And then we have watering. 
It's important to water immediately after transplanting. The moist ground helps the transplants take root faster and become established in its new environment. It just helps it have a good start and they need the water. All right, so this is going on to another thing. So that's just a quick, that's a quick overview of, of transplanting and direct seeding and some tips for transplanting. Now, moving on to beds and bed preparation. Does anybody, first of all, does anybody have any questions on that real quick? Okay, so he's wondering if you have good soil already, can you just use it, take it into your house and plant your seeds in it? Yeah, no, you can. You can, that's an option. Um, the nice thing about a soil potting mix is that it'll have a concentration of nutrients for your, for your plants to get that head start um, in going, and they'll probably end up doing better um, with a soil potting mix and start faster and grow faster, um, giving them a little jump start on life, a little boost. Yeah, I haven't heard a lot about the chemtrails, so I don't know that much that I could um, talk about that. But I appreciate I appreciate you sharing. He was sharing about how he it's important to have fertile soil, and I totally agree. We really need um, fertile soil in our gardens. So let's move on to um, growing in beds. Now, just a real quick um, note here. We suggest growing in beds versus rows. Now, it, it will depend on the crop a little bit, um, but you end up with needing less weeding and um, there's less soil compaction in the bed and you can have higher yield. And I'll show you just a graph of what a uh, picture of what I mean here. Um, let's see if we can see this. For instance, on the left-hand side, we both of these both of these squares here are the same square footage. This one's in a square and this one's in a row. Um, and you have little, I don't know if it's spinach plants or something planted here. And as you, or beets. And as you can see, there's about 12 beets in this row. Um, whereas if you planted your beets in a bed and, sta and staggered them, you could plant, I don't know, there's a lot more. It's like, 36 or something, you know, plants planted, um, if you plant them into, in a bed and stagger them, and then as time grows, as they grow up and their leaves start shading out in between each other, they'll actually shade out the weeds in between, and so you actually have less weed problems. So this is an example of the bed, just imagine it kind of extending down, you know, on each side, versus planting just in lots of rows of, of plants in your garden with spaces in between the rows. Yes, it is important to plant sweet corn close together to pollinate, um, uh, is true. All right, there are many different ways that you can set up your garden. Some people use a square foot gardening method. We suggest growing in 30 inch wide beds. Um, here's some advantages I told you I'd tell you about the 30 inch wide beds. It's, they're easy to step across, straddle, reach across for planting and harvesting. It's just kind of a nice width. Um, See some nodding their head there. Um, there are many quality tools that are actually designed for 30-inch wide beds, um, which are a blessing. We'll touch on a couple, one of them up here uh, in a little bit. Elliot Coleman's plant spacing recommendations are based on it. So if you do purchase some of his books, um, he grows in that 30-inch uh, wide beds, and you'll be able to fit right in. And like I mentioned in the last one, a 20-foot length is ideal for the home size garden, and I won't go over that again. If you've missed it, then um, you can ask me about it later. Beds are not to be walked on. This is like a cardinal rule in our farming, and it should be in your garden to use the pathways, and you can make them as wide as you want. Um, we use 12, about a 12-inch wide pathway, which is pretty small because we're maximizing our space. But they're not to be beds are not to be walked on. You want to keep that soil loose and not compacted. And if you're growing plants over the whole bed, as you can see, there, you know, you're not going to be wanting to step on them any, anyways. For the farm, in, in our hoop houses, we have some that <clears throat> are about that wide, about 27 feet actually, um, because we have 30 foot wide hoop houses, and so we have beds running sideways like that in there. But then we do have some that are much longer, because we have some longer hoop houses that are faced the other way, and so the beds run the length of the hoop house, and, you know, those are like 100 feet. <laughs> so there's, you know, it varies. Direct seed planting, you will want to um, not step, you know, you want to, you want the ground to be loose around them as well. Um, now, 
you know, if you're direct seeding, in, I mean, what you do is you can direct seed right into beds like this and just stay on the pathway still. Now, if you're doing corn or something like that, where you're doing lots of rows um, close together and you have to walk between the corn, you know, you have to walk between the corn. Um, in fact, yeah, we had this little discussion on our farm with transplanting. Like, do you do you push, do you like push the ground down around your transplants and like push them in? And you know what? I ha I haven't seen any difference between um, pushing them in or just pulling the ground and putting them in loosely. And to tell you the honest truth, it's a lot faster just to put them in loosely than to be pushing down each one. And so I just put them in loosely and I've never seen any difference between patting it down or putting it in loose. Just an observation. All right, garden bed preparation. Bed preparation is an important aspect of any garden. Simply getting your garden or space or bed ready to plant. This is just is basically getting it ready to plant your plants into. The main action involved is what we call tilling the ground. Um, tillage is an act of preparing your soil. And what tillage includes is working the soil and incorporating any fertilizers or compost or lime or manures or whatever you want to add into that bed to help your plants grow well. It can also include mixing in green manure crops into the ground. That's what we were talking about, cover crops. It was mentioned in the last um, session where you grow a crop that you're actually going to till into the ground to add organic matter to it. Really, it's any mechanical process used to prepare your garden area for planting. So here are some advantages. There's two, two types of tillage. There's deep tillage and shallow tillage. And here's some advantages of deep tillage. It breaks up soil compaction. And in the picture, you'll see here what we call a broad fork. And basically, this is a, a fork that has long tines coming down off of it here. And you step on it, and those tines go into the ground. And then you pull the fork back, and it basically lifts the soil. And so it aerates the soil. And it's an, it's an example of deep tillage. You're trying to go down deep. Um, it breaks up soil compaction. Um, aerating it, allowing air to come down in it. There's a lot of aerobic bacteria that are good in your soil, but they need air to grow. Your plant's roots need air to grow. It's good to have a nice air, um, airy soil. Helps to improve the soil structure. Um, it improves water drainage, so your water isn't just sitting there. Um, and helps crops grow deeper roots, which in increases the amount of nutrients available to your plant's roots. Never see any fish worms. Part of that could be a, a lack of organic matter in the, in the soil. It sounds like a lack of living, living matter. Um, incorporating organic matter should encourage earthworms, earthworms to come around. You know, there's some places in our garden where we don't have that many earthworms either. And I don't know the secret key to making sure that earthworms show up. Um, Steve might be able to touch on that a little bit more. I don't, I'm not sure. Yes, so Steve was saying adding lots of organic matter, and if you have a sandy soil, then mulching it really helps keeping it moist. I've noticed that we have a lot more earthworms under our mulched flower beds than we do out in our garden, and there we're not even adding lots of organic matter to the mulched flower beds. It's, it's, it's mainly that, that mulch is creating that environment of a moist. Yes, they, yeah, that's in fact, yeah, our, our flower beds are mulched with the wood chips as well. Okay, yes, this is we'll answer that right here as we go as we go along. This is what we do mainly, like 90 90 percent of the time, um, is we use or more. We use a broad fork to loosen up the soil. Um, it's hand tilling for deep footage, two foot wide. I'm just going to jump through here because we're running out of time. Teeth. Yeah, so basically that's what we use is a broad fork. And if you're using the broad fork, you're loosening up the soil, and so you don't really need to come in with a tiller. And because, I mean, that's one of the main things with a tiller is you want to loosen up the soil, make it nice and fluffy. If you're using that broad fork, you don't necessarily need to do that. And it's actually better not to use a tiller. Um, a tiller kind of beats up the ground. Although I, I will tell you a little bit about a tiller, shallow, shallow tilling. Tillers only go shallow um, for the most part. Um, shallow tillage only disrupts at the most the top six inches, but usually top three to four inches. Rotary tiller is the most um, most common. There are some advantages in that it evenly mixes organic amendments, manures and compost and fertilizers into the earth. 
um, leaves organic amendments, fertilizers and old plant material in contact with the greatest number of soil particles. And at the same time as that happening, um, it increases the fertility and biological activity of the soil. Now, the downside to that is that it speeds up the combustion process, which is basically how fast your organic matter is decomposing. And so it can really, for instance, where we live in Tennessee with the hot, humid summers, our organic matter burns up pretty quickly in our soil. And so we're constantly trying to get more organic matter into our soil. And tilling it just speeds it up even more because you're, you know, you're mixing it up, you're, you're getting it in contact with all of those soil organisms. Now, there are some disadvantages to tillage as well. Well, here's a little tip. It's best to spread your manures and compost and other soil amendments on the surface of the soil before tilling to, um, for an even incorporation. And it's important to, I would suggest if you are gonna till, make sure to get everything prepared and spread on there and only till once. Don't go in there and till and then come back and oh, I needed to put the, uh, the compost on and then put the compost on and come in and till again. Because each time that you till, it is, um, it, it does, there are some harmful effects to the soil. Let me see, I think I go over a couple of the disadvantages here. Um, it can cause harm if it's overused. It has a tendency to beat up and overwork the soil. And it also has a tendency to go in and, and beat up, like if you have earthworms and stuff. The idea that if you cut an earthworm in half, it becomes two, um, it's not true. So you don't want to, you know, when you're tilling it in, you, you can be beating up the, the living organisms in your soil that are very beneficial for you. And think of it like, you know, we all have this picture in our mind. We have this picture in our mind of a, like the soft, crumbly chocolate cake texture soil, you know, that we all really wish that we had. And think of taking that chocolate cake and putting it in a blender. Um, what happens? It, you know, it becomes... It can become powdery. If you till too much, your, your soil can lose its structure and it can just become powdery. And you really want a soil that has kind of an aggregate crumbly structure to it. That allows for air to come down inside it. It allows for good water drainage, for moisture, and all of that. So that's just a little um, caution for tillage. And we really, you know, we very rarely use our tiller. We now have a little rotary um, harrow is what it's called that we use on our beds. It, it doesn't actually till spinning the soil this way. It has little tines that t spin around and kind of spins. It's not as um, invasive, maybe I could say, as a, as a t um, tiller like this, but we do use that. It could very possibly be. Yeah, he was just wondering if he's, till he's tilling three to four times before he plants, and that could be messing up the soil. It, it, could, it could very possibly be because it, it can be harmful to the soil to till that much. Yeah, less weeds and less harvest. <laughs> All right. So now going on to how to prepare your beds. Um, how to make up a bed. Um, lay out each bed. What we what we have done is put we put rebar stakes at the end of each corner and then put a piece of PVC pipe over the rebar um, stake just to, uh, you know, rebar is kind of harsh in and of itself. Um, and then put some some masonry twine to kind of mark out our beds. The twine can then be easily removed and, or, or can be moved between different beds when you're working on them just to mark them out to, uh, you know, when you're going down with the broad fork um, to make sure that you're staying on the bed. And that's one time that we do walk on our beds is when we're using the broad fork, but we work with the broad fork backwards. So, you know, we're walking on the bed and we're loosening up the soil as we go back. I'm just sharing with you how we've done it. You can set it, you can, prepare your beds in, in a different way than this. This is just um, some tips of how we've done it. Um, growing in grow boxes, yes. Now, with the grow boxes, you still want to make sure that your soil is loose um, somehow, so you may want to get in there with the broad fork and um, keep it loose as well. Now, there is an advantage with the grow boxes in that you're less, in, you're less inclined to step into them. <laughs> Absolutely. Now for preparing the bed, um, one option is to dig the bed up by cutting off the sod with a sharp garden spade. This is if you're starting from scratch and then use the broad fork to loosen it up. But don't turn the soil. Um, some people take the broad fork and they pull it back and they're like, you know, trying to turn the soil. It's not for turning the soil, it's just for loosening it, just adding a little air to it. 
The broad pork can be used between crops as well to keep the soil loose. This is what we do every single time we prepare a bed. We come in with the broad pork and loosen it up before we plant the next crop in. Um, double digging is a big question, and it really, our, our opinion is that it really isn't necessary and it is extra work, and it can turn people away from from gardening just because of all the extra work that it is to do. And my uncle tried it out. He tried double digging one bed and growing one bed using the method that we do with the broad pork and mixing our amendments in. And he didn't notice any difference between the two. Um, so that was just, you know, our little experiment. And so we don't necessarily... Now, if you want to double dig, that's fine. You know, I, don't, I wouldn't say, you know, don't do it. Um, but it is it is extra work. It's something to consider. No, double digging is when people actually, um, I don't have time to really explain it all, but basically it's like taking out your soil, moving it aside, and then digging like even deeper down. It's 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 digging much deeper, and you do that like over your whole bed, and then you put the soil back in type of thing. Um, I've never done it, so I don't even know all the specifics about it. There's more that I could learn right there. That's right. He was wondering with the broad fork, you're not picking it up and turning it over. That's right. You're just pushing it in and and pulling it back. You don't even pull it all the way back down to the ground. You can just pull it back, you know, a good like 45 degrees and then uh, you'll you'll notice the earth kind of lift up and then yes, except your broad fork may not go in very easily on virgin soil. And so you may want to get something called a spading fork. Um, it's just a smaller you've probably seen it. It's like a garden fork that you just step on, and it takes a little more work the first time, but then once you have it loose, then that's right. Yeah. If you think about it, you're working with nature as much as possible, and in nature, your ground isn't being flipped around and inverted and, and all of that, um, just in the natural world. And so you're just loosening up the soil. You can also shallowly, there are non-tillage methods where you can shallowly remove weeds and plant residues and then add, um, okay, that's a mix-up, the non-tillage right there. This right, this right here, talking about shallowly removing weeds and plant residues, that's like if you've finished a crop, you remove them off, and then you can add compost on to plant. And what we do is we go through with the broad fork, and then we add the compost on, mix it into the soil, and then rake it out. There's a little what we call a three-prong cultivator that we use for, for doing that, for mixing the compost in. It's just shallowly mixing it into the top. Another a non-tillage method that you can use is you can use root crops that penetrate deep down into the soil to loosen it and aerate the soil without tilling. Daikon radishes are one that go really deep, um, and they will... Um, help with aerating your soil some. Um, wood chip mulch, coming back to that, that's something that you can put on. It's a non-tillage method where you mulch your bed. The, the Back to Eden is a big thing that people have gone around, and um, we don't have really experience with it, so I can't like say that it's, that it's really, you know, excellent or that it's not. Um, but you can put, if you, there, there is one thing that I will say about the wood chip mulch is make sure that you never ever till it into the ground um, because it will tie up the nitrogen in your soil and you won't be able to grow your plants in it. If you do leave it on top of the ground, it can act as a, as a mulch uh, that you can then grow your plants through. And the nice thing about it is that it does create a nice environment for those earthworms down below and it, it can keep your soil looser down below with all of that biological activity going on. Or you can let your soil build up over time. This is for the patient people. Um, cover your beds. Uh, one option you can do is you can cover your beds with newspaper three to four sheets thick. This will help keep weeds from growing through the mulch. Then you can add organic mulch on top of the newspaper. You can do that with the wood chips or um, what people do is straw. Add a big layer of straw over on top of the um, newspaper. Then keep it moist but not soggy wet, and then let nature take its course, turning the dead plant matter into rich humus. And that will take time. It's just going to take time for that to happen. Um, so if you have the time and you're patient enough, that's something that you can do. Okay, my time is up, but real quick, what about raised beds? Um, raised beds can be a good option for growing in. Um, be careful not to use pressure-treated wood. And if you're going to make them, they are a common solution for the home garden there. They come in all different sizes and shapes. Standard size 
um, for what I teach online is like a four by eight raised bed. And some things to think about is that raised beds can be possibly the best, uh, a good option for very poor, rocky or wet soils. Normally you bring in your own soil to fill up the raised beds. And so that can be helpful if your soil is very poor, rocky or wet, because um, it can stay a little drier. They can also um, warm soil more quickly in the spring. Again, don't use pressure-treated or creosote-treated wood. Some of your lumber choices, you could use natural lumber, not treated like straight from a sawmill. Um, or you can use a plastic or th synthetic alternative, um, depending on whether you want to use plastic or not. There's a picture of like plastic alternative. Um, other materials which can be used is you can use rocks or cement blocks. You know, the possibilities are endless. You can use metal containers, whatever. Um, weigh the added cost and work versus the added convenience when it comes to your raised bed. Um, and then, you know, with raised beds, you can include wide access aisles in your garden layout for using a wheelbarrow or a garden cart. Um, this is a simple little raised bed. What you'll need is like two eight foot long boards to add for your side boards, two four foot long boards um, for your ends, four small corner blocks. Um, the corner block sits right in the corner here and you screw it in from each side and it just holds that corner tight um, and square. And then you can, you can optionally put a center brace in the middle. And that's just an example. These are some raised beds that our neighbors put together and I helped him put them together. Um, those ones are, kids were only like four inches deep or whatever. He was, you know, he was kind of going for the patient method and he was, he was mulching it. And then, um, you know, he's wanting his plants to grow down into the regular soil down below, but he wants the bi uh, microbiological life and the worms and stuff to help mix it up and stuff like that. And so that's what he did. You can make them deeper. You can, you can make them as deep as you want, really. Um, I think six inches is pretty standard. Six to eight inches is pretty standard. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.